Julia is here for those of you with children who would like to send them back to get their Bible bags. All the rest of us, let's take our scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 5. As the lectionary is taking us into this Sermon on the Mount, this wonderful collection of Jesus' words as it's presented to us the way of life and how we live it and what it looks like. We're going to start with the 21st verse today and uh, Matthew 5, 21 through 37. We'll continue that next week as well as we look at what it means to actually love an enemy and how that uh, impacts our lives. You remember last week in the sermon we ended where Jesus was saying that he has not come to abolish the law but to fulfill uh, the law. And in part we saw that Jesus is referring, of course, to the Ten Commandments, the moral law. And as we studied earlier in the service with the Deuteronomic Principle, we are in harmony with God's laws when we abide by the laws of nature and don't try to break them, and also when we abide by the moral law to not steal or lie or kill or commit adultery or covet or put other gods in place of the living God and the one that gives life. But if we choose not to do that, and God, of course, gives us the freedom because love requires freedom, if we choose not to do that and we attempt to break the moral law, we will experience the consequences of sin, this great hell on earth destruction to our lives. The Bible calls the choice we're making a simple one. It's choosing between life and death, between blessings and curses. And these blessings and curses are as real as gravity itself. It is not something that uh, changes for one person over another or at different points in time or for one nation over another. It's the way God created the world. But now Jesus continues in his sermon and he explains that in coming to fulfill the law, this is what he means by it. And he gives us three examples of ways that He's interactive with us. You could say four, depending on how you read the one. He starts with murder. And yes, obviously, if we live in a world where people murder someone for texting in a theater or for having their music on too loud at a gas station, then we will have pandemonium in our culture. It will disintegrate the very culture in which we live. We can't have people murdering one another. But these external laws, the moral laws of the Old Testament, require police and prisons and justice systems uh, to enforce that kind of, of uh, conditional peace upon us. What Jesus is after, and really the only solution to the human condition as a whole, is for these external laws to become internal changes of the human heart in which we have a law written on the heart, a fulfillment of the law in which we literally not only don't want to kill someone, but we don't want to be angry with them. We don't want to dismiss them. That's what the word raka means. You're not even worthy of my paying any attention to your existence, where we ridicule them, where they are of no worth to us. Unless we change that, we're not going to find peace on earth. It's not enough to have external laws that we have armies and police to try to enforce. We must have the internal heart change. That internal heart change, the Bible uses the word sanctification, to be holy, to be filled with his love 
so that when we see any person, we experience love for them, not anger or hatred or disregard, where we actually care for all human beings everywhere. So that's where he's going with this. He's going to give us some examples. We're going to come back and look at how he gives us the teaching to change the human heart. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start with verse 21 and go through the 37th verse. There's a lot in this we're not going to be able to cover. I hope that you'll take time and read it and go into the commentaries on the, on the internet and see what the scholars and others have to say about it. But these are the words of Jesus Christ. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill, the Lord, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now keep that open before you, and let's pray. Father, all it takes is a moment of, of reading your son's words. And we recognize that we are in need far more than we might have even recognized. We are in need of your Holy Spirit's transforming power for us to truly be persons of love. And we would ask today that as we explore this and as we do next week, that your Holy Spirit would go before us, behind us, within us, around us, and that you would allow us to be your holy, sanctified people. 
When you do that, we will give you all the praise, of course, for we recognize that it is not in our power to do so. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you live in a world where there is a spear in every hand and a gun on every hip, then to have a law against murder is a big step forward. But as we've made the moral law, these Ten Commandments, the basis of civilization, chiseling it in stone on the east facade of our own Supreme Court building with Moses holding the Ten Commandments, we realize that this moral law, the, the Ten Commandments of God, are the bare minimum of a civilization. And to become a great society where we actively care for the poor and we care for the powerless where we are challenged to love one another and to welcome the world's masses and to treat one another with respect and dignity, to move beyond just this external law, okay, I won't kill you, to the internal change of heart in which I will actually love you and work toward your best, then we can only have that occur if the human heart is changed by the power of the living God. But as soon as Jesus turns the sermon to that point and moves us from, okay, you're not killing anyone, but we immediately see that there's so much more we need to do if we're going to truly be the people of God. We may not be murdering someone, but no anger, no disrespect, no ridicule, no sarcasm. We may not be an adulterer, but no lust, no hardness of heart. We may not bear false witness, but no fine print, complete honesty. Yes means yes, and no means no. And this is only three of the Ten Commandments. If we were to look at each of them and look at what heart change must occur in order for us to truly live in this deeper fulfillment of the law, we immediately recognize that we cannot do so without God. He has to work within us, convicting us, pointing it out when we're not being loving towards someone, empowering us not only to be forgiven but to be cleansed to live new life for him. It is a point in which we recognize that to sanctify these hearts of ours, the Holy Spirit must be daily at work in each of our lives. We need help. Thankfully, of course, that's why Jesus Christ came. And thankfully, that's why he left and sent his Holy Spirit to be with us, the ever-present counselor, the one who is with us daily. If we will just listen, he will walk with us and change us and transform us through his wonderful power. So in this sermon that Jesus gives, he does not go through all the ten, which I think would be wonderful if he did, but he does give very helpful counsel. And you begin to realize that he's trying to give a representative counsel, not exactly what you do in each of the instances, but this is the kind of thing that needs to happen in your life all the way through your moral life in order for you to have a heart change and to truly be heart-changed people. So we're going to look at each of these three. There's four kinds of teachings that he's going to do. 
But again, I, I encourage you uh, to spend time this week meditating and praying and opening yourself to him. The first has to do with anger, with belittling others, raka, with ridiculing others. He first says, before you even begin to worship God, be reconciled with anyone you've shown anger or belittling or sarcasm to. Verse 23 says it this way. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you in one of those ways, but anyway, I suppose, leave your gift there in the front of the altar, go first and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Perhaps what Jesus is saying is the most damaging thing we can do as a Christian is to come to church and only act like we live in love and peace with our neighbors. But yet we do not and do not actually intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God and walking in his holy ways. What Jesus is saying seems to us is that church is not a replacement or a substitution for being angry or insulting or ridiculing a person. We can't destroy a person on Wednesday and then come to church and ask God to receive our offering and act as though we live in love and peace with our neighbors and it, we are intending to lead a new life without first going and making it right with the person we've harmed. God is not into religion replacing reality and church does not substitute for sanctification we are a people of God this is the place where we are encouraged and nourished to live the life of God but this is not life in the full life in the full is how we live each day of our lives now, this reconciliation means that by God's grace and power, we change the way we treat people. We make things right. We follow the full account of reconciliation. We apologize. We regret the change, the behavior, and we commit to change by God's grace and power. Church is a place that allows us and empowers us to do that. And second, Jesus says that if we cheated someone in business and took advantage of someone unjustly, church is not a substitute for going to that person and settling matters quickly without justification, without trying to manipulate the situation. Attending church is not a substitute for integrity. In all of our business, all of our personal matters, we are to be people who do it with justice and rightness. Now the third word of counsel that Jesus gives has to do with lust. Today perhaps we would use the phrase sexual addiction. I have spent thousands and thousands of hours helping people walk through the process of healing from sexual addiction, from what the scriptures call lust. Now, it's important to, to say what it is and what it is not. It is not lust to enjoy the beauty of a person. 
that is a part of the created order and a part of the world. And to enjoy the beauty of a person is what God, of course, gives us the ability to do, to see beauty in all places, especially in other human beings. I have noted that when a person has a hyper-demand and they can't notice if they're a man the beauty of a woman or a woman the beauty in all the ways that women enjoy a man, that only increases the likelihood of sexual falling when you're unable to enjoy the beauty of a human being. The second thing that it is not, lust is not enjoying beauty. The second thing it is not is that temptation is not lust. Temptation is not sin. To be tempted to open the link or to watch the video or to get alone with the co-worker or the neighbor is not adultery or lust. It is temptation. Temptation comes to all of us all the time. It is not sin. To act on that temptation, to open the door, to go down that path and to commit that sexual sin is destruction. And it will devastate your life in a whole host of ways. Now the solution Jesus gives is an absolute one. Gouge it out and cut it off. Complete abstinence. Completely remove the possibility of acting on that lust or on that addiction. If we do not, we will find ourselves living in a hellish place. A hell on earth and if not repented, a hell to come. Now I know that because I go there with people. I empathetically sit in the stench and the burning pain of adultery and the destruction of addiction that has stolen the sexuality of a marriage. We soon realize as we walk through that difficult and painful time that the only solution is to cut off the possibility of the sin. Remove the computer if necessary. It is not worth your life. Certainly put protections on those things and on all the behaviors of our lives. Never see that man or that woman again. For whatever purpose, for whatever reason, for whatever justification, for whatever rationalization the one to whom you betrayed your beloved's trust and adulterated the purity of the wedding vow. Never. Have nothing to do with anything or anyone who tempts you and your desires. Do not believe a culture that's asking you to sell your soul for momentary thrill. And then the last area that Jesus explains is that the promises and contracts that we make should not have fine print in them. Our oaths, our oaths, our word that we make shouldn't even be necessary for an oath. The lawyers in Jesus' day had created a whole system of laws, thousands of pages as we have millions of pages in our own nation, in which certain things are binding and certain things are not. And if you do this thing and bind it by this oath, then it's fitting and you have to be held accountable. But if you made the wrong oath and made an oath for Jerusalem when it should have been for your head, then it's no longer binding. And so 
the lawyers would play these legal games. And if you didn't have your lawyer, who is just as well-versed in the law as the other person, uh, you would be tricked or you could trick someone and you could get unfair advantage legally with the protection of the state around you. Now that reality, Jesus says, should not happen in our lives. We should not deceive. We should not play the legal game. We should say yes or no. Let your yes be yes. Your, your word is your bond. You will do what you commit to do. In the simplest of things and in the largest of things. You do not need a contract to bind you. For you will fulfill the obligation. We are guided by God's integrity and our integrity in our lives. And we all know the Holy Spirit will convict you immediately if you will listen and you will not harden your heart against God. He will help you to know that your yes is yes in this. No, your no is no in this. And you will not play that legal game. Now we could go on and as I said, I would encourage you to do so. But the law that Jesus is describing that is fulfilled in his coming is an external law that has now become written on our hearts. It's the law of love. It's that awareness that we want the very best for every person, including our own family, ourselves, the enemy and the neighbor. And we want everyone to experience that wholeness. So this morning I encourage us as we look through here to recognize we're all in this together. Every single one of us need the Holy Spirit's power if we're going to actually live lives with an internal presence of God and an internal love for all people. It's an increasing process. Many have spent decades exploring and experiencing. If you're just starting out, allow God's grace to be with you, but listen to his conviction. Respond to his call. Do what he says. Don't harden your heart against God. Allow him to bring blessing because you are a blessing in all of your relationships and in all of your dealings. Let's spend time with him.